Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> Hello there. It's wonderful to see you back at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got a very curious item indeed. It's more of a concept than an item, but in lieu of that, I do have uh, something I pulled from the bookcase of fables, lost manuscripts, and forgotten tomes. It is a play written by the bard himself, William Shakespeare, and in perusing some of these tattered, weathered, faded pages, I found an interesting quote that may tie in with today's subject, and it goes like this, To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by sleep we say we end. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation, devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, ay, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come. And dreams indeed are the subject of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the mutoscope and take a look at the new Netflix series, The Sandman. Now, The Sandman is a graphic novel series by Neil Gaiman. It came out in the late 80s. I believe it ran through uh, from like 89 to 93, 96, somewhere there in the mid-90s. And this is one of those graphic novels. There are many of them out there, and graphic novels are even more commonplace today than they really were back then. I mean, back then it was a lot of superhero comics, but then you had some of the independents starting to come into play with some of the more uh, graphic depictions of of horror and science fiction being displayed. I mean, you, you had that uh, leading up to this point. I mean, you had like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was uh, really a, kind of akin to the graphic novels that we kind of saw really come to the forefront in the 90s. But this really was kind of one of the, the first to really gain some traction as far as uh, gaining respect from both the comic book community and maybe the literary community. I mean, you have people that that are into comics that really love this. And you have people that are maybe uh, casually comic book fans, but they know of the Sandman. They knew of Neil Gaiman. And there's a lot of respect for this. And of course, this uh, series uh, won a lot of awards. The Sandman won a lot of awards for Neil Gaiman uh, just because of the the subject matter and the depth of these stories that uh, Neil Gaiman put out in this comic book. I mean, uh, that's one of the things that I think is really cool about The Sandman is that you have so many different levels and so many different layers and things have uh, multiple meanings and there's just a, a blending of tones and there's a, a blending of genre. You get some of the ethereal stuff, but then you get some things that kind of lean into straight up horror. Uh, you get things that lean into fantasy and a little bit of science fiction. Now, I know the original comics had a lot of the DC universe in this because this was a DC comic. Uh, the Sandman is a character from back in the golden age of DC Comics that has been around, and that's how they they went to Neil Gaiman and wanted him to revive this, and uh, they wanted him to do something completely different. So there have been other versions of the Sandman that kind of lean a little more towards the traditional superhero that we know of from comics, but Neil Gaiman uh, did something completely different and completely reinvented this character and reinvented... I think what can be done with comics. And granted, like I said, this is DC. So there are a lot of references to DC characters in this comic series. And some of the darker toned ones like Swamp Thing and Constantine. 
But there's also references in the comics to some of the other, like Justice League and, and Arkham Asylum and, and things of that nature, things that we see more like Batman and Superman comics. I'm glad that the Netflix series didn't dive into that, only, only very loosely. But I'm glad they kept this separate. I'm glad they made this series, the Sandman series, its own thing and didn't really rely on some of the old tried and true DC comic characters to give this some, I, I don't know if you want to call it legitimacy or, or whatever you want to want to say, but I'm, I'm glad they made the Sandman this series. Uh, it's DC, but it's its own thing. And like I said, you get some loose references and some vague references to some other DC characters, but not like the big, like I said, Batmans or Supermans or anything like that. It's some of the darker, more arcane characters in series. And, and we'll kind of talk about that as we get closer to it. But uh, this very much was a DC property and it had a lot of references to DC characters. But really, totally, this just uh, took comics in a different direction that I think has been one of those properties that people have wanted to adapt for for the small screen, for the big screen. They've wanted to do this, but they really, I don't think they've had the right people involved. I don't think that just with the dream aspect of the Sandman. I don't think we have the technology to do it before now. And I think this is really a situation where right now is the perfect time for this to come out because we have the technology to really do this correctly. And you've got a platform like Netflix, which I bitch about Netflix a lot. Uh, Netflix has its issues, but when they do a show right, they go all out and they do it right. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the comics and haven't watched the show yet, this story is about the titular Sandman. He is Lord Morpheus, also known as Dream or Dream of the Endless. Uh, he is the ruler of the dreaming. The dreaming is a world where we go when we are asleep and when we are in our dreams. We are in the dreaming and Morpheus... Uh, dream. He is the lord of this land and kind of uh, creates things, creates dreams, creates nightmares, and he rules over them to keep them in check and just keep things running smoothly. And Dream as a character is an anthropomorphic character based on like a metaphysical idea. Uh, there are, are seven, I believe, endless. There's Dream, Death, Desire, Despair, Destiny, Delirium, and they only refer to him as the prodigal uh, in the show, but Destruction is kind of the, the prodigal son uh, character that we, we don't know much about. We Like I said, they only reference him as this lost brother, as this prodigal. Uh, I imagine we're going to find out more of, about this character, maybe not in season two. Uh, I think we may get some more information about this character. I mean, I, I could be wrong. Uh, they they may go full in on destruction in season two, but I think it might be something they hold off to really go into that story in season three. But I am not 100% sure. <laughs> But all of these different ideas, all these uh, different, not necessarily emotions, but like I said, all these metaphysical ideas, uh, they are the king of their own realm. They are the ruler of their own realm. And we get really this whole story jump-started when this character, Sir Roderick Burgess, he is played by Charles Dance. And I love seeing Charles Dance show up in things. Uh, I'm like, oh, there's Tywin Lannister. <laughs> and of course, even when I see something that he was in pre-Game of Thrones, I'm like, oh, there's young Tywin Lannister. Uh, but it, it's always wonderful to see him show up in, in any sort of movie or or series because he's such a great actor and he adds such weight to any character he does. He is the kind of guy that he can play a good guy, but when he plays a bad guy, he can really lay on the menace and the, the sinisterness 
of of the character and he really does it with this uh, Roderick Burgess uh, he is a man whose uh, oldest son has died in the war this is taking place in the 19 1916 I believe and of course uh, he is trying to summon death so death will bring back his son well instead of summoning death he summons Dream, and in order to get his son back, uh, he's imprisoning Dream because he feels Dream can can somehow bring his son back, or at least let him know how he can get Death to bring his son back. And Dream, for the first part of this, I mean, we get a little bit of a voiceover monologue at the beginning with Dream, but the first you know half of this first episode uh, we don't really get to see dream speaking he sits there silently and he sits there in this cage silently for a century and when he finally gets out he goes back to the dreaming and finds that it's a, a barren wasteland and that's one of the cool things i thought they did early on while they're doing this monologue with dream talking about the dreaming kind of setting up the scenario of what's going on and and who we're talking about and what we're seeing they do kind of a fly through of the dreaming and we get to see glimpses of characters we'll see later and we get to see all these fanciful dreamlike scapes and it really is uh magnificent to watch and then when he actually goes back to the dreaming and finds that everyone has abandoned the dreaming and it's nothing but a barren wasteland it's quite sad to see that it's almost like never-ending story when people stopped making wishes and stopped believing and the nothing took over and there's just nothing left uh, it, it kind of had that vibe about it and the only character that is left is the librarian of the dreaming uh, lucian and then they start rebuilding now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the different storylines because the one of the things I thought was really cool about this is they really treated this like stories in a comic book. They didn't try to add like a bunch of shit just to stretch one storyline out to a whole 10 episode season. Uh, they treated it much like you would treat a comic book or, or stories in a comic book might go. The first few episodes, I believe it's episode one through five, is one story arc. Then you get kind of a standalone episode in episode six. Not really a standalone. It, it, it ties in, but it also is it, kind of an interlude episode. And then the last episodes, seven through ten, are another storyline with one character kind of being the through line for the first story and the last story. I'll kind of talk about this and explain it all, but I liked how they kind of broke it up because when you get story arcs in a comic book series, it isn't just always one story arc for the whole series of books. You'll get a little story here, maybe a standalone thing here, another little story here, maybe a couple little standalone stories, and then you might have a through line for the whole thing, but you get various stories, and it's not all just one big continuous story without any break whatsoever. So I, I kind of dug that it had that vibe. It really felt uh, like a how stories are set up in comic books. Now, before we get into the stories, because like I said, I, I want to talk about some of the storylines uh, because there are some very interesting aspects of these stories. I'm not going to get into too much detail because for anybody that hasn't watched the series, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but we're going to talk about some of the themes and things that went on during those. But I do want to talk about some of the characters and some of the actors who played these characters, especially Morpheus, uh, Lord Morpheus, Dream, the King of Dreams and Nightmares, uh, Ruler of the Dreaming. Tom Sturridge played this part excellently. He really had this wonderful look about him that was very, it wasn't a carbon copy of Dream from the comics, but it was very much inspired by that the crazy hair, uh, very pale skin, uh, very stoic in nature. And I loved the delivery of his lines. And I know I've heard a lot of people talk about this, how uh, the, the delivery of his lines are so soft and wispy and they almost feel dreamlike. Uh, but they carry some weight to him. The, the tenor of his voice really carries weight. And while he's not terribly animated often, because he does kind of have this stoic, disaffected, uh, detached 
uh, sort of personality, when he does show a little personality show through, it, it just makes it all, it, it pays off all that stoicism. When something really amuses him and he gets this kind of little smirk on his face, it really is some brilliant acting, very subtle acting, very minimalistic acting, but it is brilliant acting. And they could have got an actor who was just phoning it in and not really putting on a performance uh, because as far as acting, Acting goes, there's not a lot to do in as far as emoting or, you know, being very charismatic and flamboyant and really uh, belting out lines and things like that. There's nothing like that for this character for the most part, His, but his performance is so subtle. It could easily have been, like I said, just phoned in and not really had anything done with it. But what he does with this character is very well thought out and very well done so that uh, he's doing as minimal as possible uh, because that's what the character is. But within that, he's really putting on a great performance and doing a lot with a little. And I'll kind of talk a little more about this character, uh, Dream, as we talk about the the two really main storylines of this first season. But uh, a couple of the other characters I want to talk about that I just absolutely loved. Uh, Boyd Holbrook played the Corinthian. You might remember him. He was in Logan. He was in 2018's The Predator. He's been in several things. And he just really had a great look and a great delivery for this character, the Corinthian. Now, the Corinthian, they had to make this character uh, a little more involved than he is in the comics. Uh, they stretched this character. The Corinthian storyline was the through line for both of the the main stories of this uh the corinthian is a nightmare that escaped the dreaming while morpheus was imprisoned and he's come to the real world and he has become a serial killer he's been uh, killing people uh, by taking their eyes out for the past hundred years now everybody thinks that it is somebody taking up the mantle of the corinthian over the years but he is torturing people in real life which is a big no-no with the dreaming so uh, throughout this whole series, Dream is trying to find the Corinthian whilst he is taking care of these other things. And Boyd Holbrook plays this character quite brilliantly because he has a southern charm that mixed with the menace of this character is just quite frightening. He reminds you of like one of those uh, southern charlatans from from a bygone era, maybe somebody that's selling snake oil or something like that. Uh, they could charm the panties off a nun. Uh, they're that smooth talking and that charismatic and that very serpent-like, uh, you know, how they, they portray the devil in a lot of, uh, a lot of cultures as the serpent, the, uh, the liar, the quick-tongued, silver-tongued serpent. And uh, he does that great, but there's always just uh, a tone of uh, malice behind every word he says. And it's just, he does a fantastic job with this character, which didn't get a whole lot in the first story. Uh, he was just kind of there just to establish the character. And he got some cool kill scenes that kind of added a horror element to it. But it's not really until the second half of the season that we really get to see the Corinthian and this character fully. So we'll talk a little more about that when it gets closer. Uh, another character I really loved was Lucian, played by Vivian Achimpong. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Lucian is the librarian of the Dreaming. Now this is a character that I know there was a lot of grief about casting for this. Uh, a lot of people were not happy about uh, a lot of the casting. And this was a character that was gender swapped and I believe race swapped. But for me, I, I didn't mind that. There were a lot of characters that were gender and race swapped in this. And I have made no bones about it when it doesn't work for me. Because sometimes uh, a character's race informs the character itself. And, but when it doesn't really matter if the character is male or female, black, white, Asian, Indian, whatever, then 
you know, it, it doesn't matter to me. And this really, uh, all of the race swapping and gender swapping they did in this uh, didn't have any real bearing on the story. So I was perfectly fine with that. And I thought Vivian Ashampong uh, did a fantastic job as Lucian. She really is the Jiminy Cricket to Morpheus, a.k.a. Dreams, Pinocchio. And I draw some, I'm going to draw some kind of parallels to that later, but Lucian is the moral compass for Dream because Dream is a character that we don't really know much about before we meet him, but we hear people talking about just how stern and how uh, hard of a person he was or, or a not a deity or whatever he happens to be, but uh, he was a strict ruler and a lot of people comment about that. And, and one character comments about how he's changed by the end of it. And not only has Dream changed since being captured and imprisoned for a hundred years, but also I think there's a lot of influence from Lucian as to Dream becoming more human, if you will. Because I'll just talk about it right now. There is a lot of this that I think is about the humanity of Dream. Dream preaches a lot about uh, how the endless are created to serve humanity, not the other way around. But yet he doesn't understand what it means to be human. Things like forgiveness, things like he talks about hope, but I don't think he really understands hope. And in this and I'm not sure if it's so much a overt theme of the comics, but in this, I think there's a theme of Dream discovering what it means to be human and taking on some of the traits of humanity that, uh, that he claims to serve, to understand humanity. I think he could better serve them and better serve the denizens of the dreaming. So that's something I think we're going to find more of as this series goes on. Hopefully he gets a, if it doesn't get a second season, I, I don't know what to say about Netflix, but we'll discuss my thoughts on that a little later. But uh, Vivian Ashampong did a fantastic job as Lucian. Uh, she does have kind of that, uh, that fantastic, like I said, almost Jiminy Cricket feel. Uh, she's very studious, but very caring. Uh, she is very much a character, Lucian, that looks at things from both sides. She understands the things that sometimes escape dream as far as things like forgiveness and mercy and compassion. Uh, so it's really the, the dynamic and the chemistry between Tom Sturridge and Vivian Ashampong uh, is fantastic because I love these two together. They do these characters such justice uh, from the from the comics to the screen, and uh, was very happy with with both performances. Uh, Pat Oswald uh, does Matthew the Raven. Uh, he's kind of uh, one of Dream's emissaries, if you will. Uh, I was a little taken aback uh, with Pat Oswald because he's got such a very distinct voice, and even even when he's not playing comedy, uh, his voice can come across as very. Uh, animated and comedic, but it was something where his voice as Matthew the Raven really kind of grew on me as as the character developed and as the series went on. And then I'm just going to quickly go through some of the other secondary characters that we run into. There's, of course, John D. In the comics, he's the supervillain Dr. Destiny. Uh, I'm glad they kind of dialed back this character, but really still kept the essence of the character intact. And and he's played brilliantly by David Thewlis, who is another one of those actors that I just, every time I see him show up in something, uh, I just absolutely am excited because he's such a great actor. I, I know he's he had been acting long before that, but I think the first time I ever really took notice of him was in 1996's Dragonheart. Uh, he, he played the king in that. And just, like I said, every time I've seen him since then, I am in awe at the things he does. Uh, it, it was a shitty movie, but The Island of Dr. Moreau that came around right after Dragonheart was really good. His work in the Harry Potter series is excellent. I mean, I could keep going on. The list goes on and on. But he had uh, he had some really great scenes and and one of the best episodes of the series 
I thought was the, I believe uh, it, the episode was called 24 seven, but uh, I believe the comic was either 24. It's the one where he's in the diner and the people in this diner, he is compelling them to stop lying, to always tell the truth. And the whole thing that happens, because that's, that's one of the things he wants to do is endeavors to make everyone tell the truth and not lie and he kind of does this little experiment in this diner and chaos ensues and it was just a a brilliant episode so self-contained to this diner and these these few handful of characters and we get to meet these characters and learn a lot about them and watch them devolve from from good people into savages killing each other and here you have the John D character just kind of uh <laughs> kind of like Nero playing the fiddle as Rome burns and it's just such a brilliant episode it felt very much like a classic twilight zone episode it was just something fantastic to watch and like i said one of the the best written episodes in a in a lot of really good written episodes, but this one of the best written episodes and one of my favorites of the season. And and David uh, Thewlis plays this character John D quite well. It's a shame that the character I, I don't think we've seen we may not have seen the last of him. I don't know, but uh, but it's a shame he couldn't have been in more because he's just a brilliant actor and played this character brilliantly. Another character that was really interesting and a bit of a a gender swap was Jenna Coleman playing Johanna Constantine, an occult detective. Now, in the Sandman comics, he deals with John Constantine. Uh, we've seen you know, we've seen various versions of Constantine, the Keanu Reeves movie. We've seen him in some of the the DC TV stuff. Uh, I don't really think there's been a very accurate, definitive version of this this character Constantine. I I look forward to when they actually do that, but they couldn't do that for this series because they couldn't get the rights. Uh Warner Brothers and DC the rights for their, for all these characters are so screwed up right now and I know that uh Warner Brothers has this new guy in charge kind of like the kevin feige of dc now and i think the the idea is to start consolidating all these different uh variations of dc properties so i i would like to think that maybe uh if they could have just held off on this a little longer we might have got john constantine in this but but we don't and and i'm fine with that and i'm fine with the fact that they got jenna coleman because she does a really good job i don't mind that they changed it to johanna constantine Constantine because that is actual character from the from the Sandman comics uh, from further back in the timeline but still a character and they kept the character the same this Johannes Constantine and John Constantine are both occult detectives doing exorcisms, things like that. Uh, they, she, she did kind of a very, very similar accent to him. Uh, very much sounds like Billy Butcher from, from the boys. But uh, they, they did enough homages to Con- the John Constantine character without getting in trouble. Uh, with us, Johanna Constantine. So I, I didn't mind that. I liked it. I thought uh, Jenna Coleman did a really good job with this. Again, are we going to see this character show up uh, in later seasons? I, I don't know. I don't know the com. I know the comics uh, in a cursory uh, way. I don't know them in depth. Uh, so I can't remember if Constantine shows up again. Probably, but uh, but would like to see more of this character in this world. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie plays Lucifer Morningstar when. Uh, dream has to go to hell and and we'll kind of get that into that when we talk about the two uh, main storylines but uh, she was another one that people were really upset that they cast her and I, I I didn't mind it she's a fantastic actress and you know they really had the Lucifer character I've heard it compared to like David Bowie in the comics and David Bowie always kind of had that androgynous feel and and Gr- Gwendolyn Christie except for the hairdo the hairdo was very feminine but she really if they would have maybe shortened up the hair or not did the curls or or something I don't know they could have made it a little more androgynous a little closer to the comics but I think she did a fantastic 
fantastic job. Uh, that that little mind duel. Uh, I heard somebody describe it as uh, like a a D and D battle. Uh, was very cool. And then we kind of got a little not a PS scene at the end, but uh, they ended on a scene with her that kind of launches things into the next season, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, Kirby Howell Baptiste plays Death. And I knew she looked familiar. My wife and I have been watching Barry. Uh, We just finally got caught up uh, with Barry and on HBO Max. And she plays one of the characters, one of the uh, like background characters in the first two seasons, I believe. But uh, she plays Death in this. And another one of my favorite episodes. It was the one standalone episode. That kind of, they kind of split it into two storylines. But they, they base this episode six on, on two stories. One called The Sound of Her Wings. And the other half of that story is Men of Good Fortune, I believe. And The Sound of Her Wings part is where uh, Death runs into Dream uh, on a park bench feeding the pigeons. And he's all uh, in the throes of depression because of, of what has happened to the dreaming. And she takes him on this walking tour as she is going about her business of killing people, essentially. And it, she just played this so well because it was such a, I, I know we've seen versions, this version of death before the, the kindly death that's just there to help move you on to the other side. Uh, Robert Redford played it in that, uh, one episode of the twilight zone back in the sixties. Uh, they've, they've done other various versions of this, but I like this version of death, uh, other than. The, you know, the hooded guy with the skull and the the sickle. I like the non-scary version of death sometimes because death doesn't have to be a scary thing. And then that's kind of what the whole the whole crux of the, the episode was about is that death doesn't have to be a, a scary thing. We get to see her take a an old man who has lived his life to its fullest. Uh, we get to see her take people unexpectedly. We get to see her take a, a baby, which is probably one of the most heartbreaking scenes. And the score in this, the score in this whole series is brilliant. Uh, but the score in this episode, uh, especially with the sound of her wings portion of this episode, was just so, I mean, it could bring you to tears by itself, but but that coupled with, you know, the, uh, the sweet nature of, of this character and this actress playing this character and the subject matter and it it all also ties into a lot about dream learning about humanity on his his quest to become more human so to speak but it's a a beautiful episode beautifully acted by both tom sturridge but especially by kirby howell baptiste who who plays death and i can't wait to see uh, more of her in seasons to come of this this series and then you have uh ferdinand kingsley who is actually the son of the actor the great ben kingsley plays hob gadling who is in the part of the second half of episode six, uh, Men of Good Fortune, where Death uh, introduces Dream to this character, Hob Gadling, uh, back in the 1400s, 1300s, 1400s, somewhere around there. And the guy's going on about how uh, he's he's decided he's not going to die. He's going to live forever. And Death decides to grant him his wish and not take him and dream decides that uh, well he'll within a hundred years he'll be begging for death so uh, they plan to meet there hobgadling and dream they're going to meet at the same pub every hundred years and for every time they meet every hundred years uh, hobgadling is no i don't want to die you know, even from the time he's in good fortune to the time he's destitute he wants to live and again it's more about teaching uh dream the value of life the value of humanity and really hobgadling becoming dream's first friend it's very touching and and very much uh, it seems like a standalone episode but really in the greater theme of this and the greater theme of dream uh learning about humanity 
and, and what it means to be human. I, I think it really speaks a lot to that theme than, than even the whole of the rest of the series. But those are some of the standout performances that I thought uh, of this series. Now, there's some actors in the second half of the series. Uh, it's not that they were bad actors or, or they did a horrible job because there were no bad jobs in this, but they just didn't really stand out. Those uh, those actors and those characters just didn't really stand out to me because uh, this second half of the season, episode 7 through 10, was probably the weaker storyline because in the first half of this season, episodes 1 through 5, you get uh, Roderick Burgess uh, trapping Dream. You get Dream and the story of him escaping eventually after a hundred years. You get the story of him going back to the dreaming and trying to rebuild and bring back all the dreams and nightmares that had left. He has these tools, a bag of sand, a, a mask that he wears. It's very creepy. It looks like a gas mask with like this elephant's trunk of like somebody's backbone it's very bizarre and creepy uh but he's got that and then there's ruby and the first half is it's almost like a, a fetch quest from a video game where he has to go to all these different places and encounter all these people that have these items uh he meets johanna constantine she has his bag of stand he goes to hell because one of lucifer morningstar's demons has his mask uh he goes to john d because john d's mother stole the ruby from john d's father roderick burgess and now john d has the ruby and he's kind of altered it to to give him power and that's how he has the power that he has uh throughout this first half of the season and this first half of the season it was really engaging uh like i said meeting all these different characters was was fun uh it was very dark and it was very gothic in, in many ways uh, then you have that standalone episode of episode six and then we get into the last half of the season where the Corinthian, who we were introduced to in the first few episodes, we see little scenes of him there, but uh, he comes into play because all of a sudden we're introduced to this Rose Walker character, and she is a dream vortex. A dream vortex is a concept that is hard enough to describe, let alone depict on, on the small screen. I, I don't think they ever really fully explain what a dream vortex is and even dream says at some points that uh, he's not even really sure what's what's going on how dream vortex has happened but the only thing you need to know is that a dream vortex is a person who can tear down the wall between the waking world and the dreaming world and thus ostensibly destroy both and dreams only recourse is to kill the the vortex the dream vortex which is rose walker and which creates a conundrum because nobody wants him to kill her because she's a good person she's just trying to find her brother uh there's a whole subplot where her brother jed and her were separated as kids from divorced parents and Jed is being taken in by this abusive uh, father figure. But you have the Corinthian who comes and gets Jed to lure in Rose so he can uh, essentially destroy Dream. And because he knows Dream is trying to come and take him back to the Dreaming. And it's all, it's, it's an interesting enough storyline. It's not that it was bad. Uh, I, you know, I, I talk about it being the weaker of the, the two main plots. But it still wasn't bad. Don't get me wrong. Just because it was the weaker story doesn't mean it was a bad story. I think the problem that the second half of the season really suffered from is that it wasn't the first half of the season. And the first half of the season was all full of world building. And we got to see these various worlds. The Dreaming, Hell, other places. We got all these dynamic characters that were being introduced to. And it was very exciting. It was very fresh and you know constantly moving. Where in the second half of the season, the characters, like I said, while they're still good, they weren't quite as dynamic. The story wasn't quite as dynamic. Uh, but that doesn't mean, like I said, that the second half of the season was bad by any stretch of the imagination. Because you also get to meet a lot of interesting characters in.
in this. You get uh, an interesting Swamp Thing reference. There's a character, the Corinthian takes Jed to this serial killer's convention, and there's a man there that is claiming to be this particular character. And the Corinthian is like, no, that character uh, drowned in a, in Louisiana x number of years ago and that character was a character that was that drowned in louisiana in a swamp thing comic so it it was a cool little nod to swamp thing who makes appearances in the uh, sandman comics now i've heard a lot of people say the big showdown between the corinthian and morpheus aka dream was a little bit of a letdown I, i don't think so because this whole story is very cerebral it's not big fight scenes it's not big superhero fight scenes so if you're expecting that uh you didn't watch the first nine episodes because uh that just is not this show so i i didn't mind that the the final showdown between dream and the corinthian was a little low-key it was very much like the showdown between dream and lucifer but it did have a lot of interesting things we got to delve a little more into the dream world dream uh along with lucian have uh, kind of rebuilt the dreaming and we get uh, a lot more dreams in there because not only does the vortex have the ability to tear down the wall between the dreaming and the waking world but uh, rose walker as the vortex she can go into other people's dreams she can go to the dreaming to the castle where dream rules from without being invited she can do this on her own she has that power so you get a lot of cool dream sequences and a lot of cool uh characters that that are introduced through these dream sequences that are very interesting uh the way they kind of wrap it up with a older version of a character we meet briefly in like the first episode was interesting the unity character it was very much a they had their cake and ate it too (laughs) they got to kill the vortex without uh, dream having to kill rose walker another thing i really liked is when they find jed jed is being kind of taken care of by this nightmare that wants to be a dream called galt and galt is giving jed these dreams of being a superhero called the sandman and the suit that he uses was the sandman suit from uh one of the like the more superhero comics of the sandman from back in the day i think it was the third incarnation of the sandman that suit so it was kind of a nice nod to the original sandman comics you had a really nice cameo from stephen fry as gilbert aka fiddler's green uh just a lot of interesting things in that second story it's like i said it just wasn't as as dark and devious as the first half of the season i think this was a little bit uh, of a lighter half even though it did deal with the corinthian killing people and going to a serial killers convention then of course we get a couple scenes with desire one of dreams siblings uh one of the endless played by mason alexander park who has a really interesting story coming up i think because desire is very much at odds with dream and trying to bring dream down i I don't know whether it's completely sinister or maybe almost like a trickstery type thing uh, almost like a loki sort of persona it's going to be interesting Interesting to see where this character goes and where the story goes with this uh, character desire because they're setting this character up possibly to be an antagonist in the next season and then the whole season ends with lucifer being uh, told by azazel that the demons of hell want to expand and they expect lucifer to do this to essentially take over the dreaming take over the real world even storm the gates of heaven itself and we end with gwendolyn christie's lucifer character talking about how she's going to do something to tick god off and essentially going to get dream So a lot of big things set up for a potential second season, which I'm terribly excited about because this series was just fantastic. And and this is just, I mean, this first season was only based on the two first two volumes of the Sandman series, uh, Preludes and Nocturnes and Dollhouse. And for the most part, 
this is a pretty accurate representation and a pretty accurate adaptation and portrayal of the comics on the small screen. You get some dialogue that is is right off the page. You get some scenes that are, you know, a carbon copy of the comic panels from the books. So I, I have been really happy with how accurate this is to the the source material. And that's, you know, when I want to see an adaptation of something, I want to see the source material on the screen, not somebody's interpretation of what the source material is or somebody's idea of what what the source material should have been if it were better. Uh, I just I hate that idea. I hate that concept. And I think that has something to do with uh, Neil Gaiman being a part of this. He's one of the producers. I think he had a very, maybe not heavy hand, but I think he had a hand in crafting this and making sure that this was an accurate representation of his work. And that's, I, I would hope that's what any creator of, of art, uh, as far as, the written word or comics, I would hope that's what they want is an accurate representation of their work on the screen. And that's what I think they did here. And they did such a fantastic job, uh, not just with uh, adapting the material, but the world building, creating these worlds, uh, not just the, the human world, but the the dreaming. Uh, the You don't really get into the realm of desire, but you see a little bit about where desire lives. And you, you want to see more of that. What's going on there? Uh, when dream goes to hell into Lucifer's realm, you get to see that. that. That's interesting. I can't wait to see more as we dive into more of these worlds and more of these realms and kingdoms where these uh, endless uh, live and rule. So that really, to me, was cool. And one of the things I loved about this was the world building of this whole thing. The visual effects and the CG were out of this world. I couldn't have asked better. I, I've heard some people talk about some of the sets were a little sparse, uh, like Desire's set was a little sparse, but I think that was supposed to be. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean... I was completely happy with the worlds that they built, the looks of things. The CG was awesome. I just watched Prey, and the CG in that was just not that good. See, the CG animals in that were horrible. Whereas this, like Matthew the Raven, looked real. The gargoyles that they have in this looked legit, especially that first one. Uh, Gregory uh, looked like a real creature and it was just it was stunning to watch it was stunning to watch all of these cg environments and these cg characters come to life in in really good visual effects and really good cg i you know i have to say that they i don't know what the budget was for this and i would hope that if they get a second season and this does well that they'll get an even bigger budget and i can't wait to see what they do with it in season two uh, the storytelling, the arcs were were very interesting. Like I said, I like how they split the season up. It was one story, then a standalone, then another story. It really felt like how you get stories laid out in comics. You get a little tangent here, uh, a small tangent there. It goes off on another tangent. It really that to me is what reading comics is like, and I felt like this show was a good representation of that. The score was brilliant. Like I said, there were some scenes, especially in the the Sound of Her Wings episode, was just, uh, could move you to tears by themselves. But all in all, the, the score of this series, and the music was done by David Buckley, was just fantastic. It felt so much like a fantasy uh, like some of those great classic fantasies of the 80s was just, uh, it, it felt like it was taking you, the music in and of itself was taking you to another world. And that was something I absolutely loved about this is that the the show had so many layers, great acting, great storytelling. You had interesting story arcs. You had great visual effects. You had a fantastic score, just layer upon layer upon layer of quality work which makes uh, a show like this as great as it is and then of course i liked a lot of how uh, neil gaiman 
introduces a lot of legend and lore and myth and religious iconography into these stories. I mean, this guy knows a lot about uh, gods and myths. You know, of course, he did American Gods. Uh, the guy knows his stuff when it comes to mythology and things of that nature. And the fact that they layer all these things uh, on top of one another and then have all this all this stuff within the story that you can pick this out, you know, Cain and Abel uh, in this part of the story, references to to Greek gods and 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 other sorts of myths and things we've we've heard about that we can say, oh, I know, I know that. That's oh, that's where that came from, or you know, that's where you know Neil Gaiman's supposing this came from, and it's all very enchanting and, like I said, kind of leans into the fantasy of all of this, and that's what this is. This. TV series is a fable, it is a fantasy, it is a dream, and it is something that just takes you to another world, and that really is what you want with any good fantasy. And if it scares you a little bit, if it makes you think a little bit more, if it moves you in some way, uh, that's all the better. And that I think is what, and this show encapsulates all those things. Netflix doesn't always do it, but when they hit one out of the park, they're sending this all the way to the river. If you if you know the Pittsburgh Pirates and PNC Park, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know what I'm referencing. But uh, seriously, though, it is, uh, to me, uh, this was a masterpiece. Uh, and I, I, I don't say that often. I don't get to say that often enough with TV series and movies, but this made me so excited for another series, uh, another season of this that I, I can't wait to see what's next in The Sandman because one, Neil Gaiman should be very proud of what he's accomplished with the Sandman graphic novels, but he should be just as proud of what has been accomplished with this series based on his works because like i said it's very true uh you know they change little things here and there uh they may do a race swap or a gender swap but like i said it doesn't alter the story at all so why does that matter and and i've really enjoyed this uh from top to bottom uh from all different levels i've really enjoyed this series and like i said Cannot wait to see what they do with season two. So there you have it. That is my thought on, or many thoughts. We've gone on for quite a while now. Uh, my many thoughts on Netflix's new series, The Sandman. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I do. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to watch it. If you haven't, uh, I probably spoiled a lot for you if you're listening still. But uh, if you don't mind spoilers, go back and watch it. Uh, because you're certainly going to enjoy this I believe. So be sure to check out everything that's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on Facebook. We're always posting trailers to the latest movies and series that are coming out. We're always talking about what we've got coming up on the show. I'm always sharing articles from all over the internet about horror fantasy and science fiction. Uh, so check that out. And no matter where you're listening to this podcast, whatever platform, please uh, download it, subscribe to it, leave a review, five stars would be awesome. Share it. That's the most important thing. Share this podcast with the people you know that love horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And we would greatly appreciate it. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!